are going to the Gospel of John, John the 19th chapter. I want to encourage all of you, next week is a huge week. Next week, uh, every time we have a production, we usually see four, or five, sometimes even 6,000 people come to church. And so what a great opportunity it is for you to invite somebody out to the house of God so that they can meet Jesus. And so please be prayerful this week about doing that. John chapter number 19, verse number 30. One little portion of the verse, a short portion, but a powerful portion. Jesus said, it is finished. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you minister by your grace and by your power to every single heart? Would you bring alive the meaning of this little verse of scripture so that we would know you in a deeper way? In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, you may be seated today in our series. I want to all in. I want to minister to you on the subject, the place where Jesus went all in for us. Today we are exactly one week away from the most consequential eight days in human history. We call it Passion Week. It began on Palm Sunday, which is next week, and it it lasted until um, the resurrection. Obviously, we know that. That is the day that Jesus definitively dismissed every doubt that he was divinity by uh, defeating death, hell, and the grave. Because how many of you know, if you can kill God and he stays dead, he's not God. That is the difference between us and every single other religion. I've told you before about my friend who's Muslim that I've ran into at the clothing store one day. And he said, oh, we the same, we the same. I was like, no, we're not the same. He said, why aren't we the same? I said, because the God you serve is dead. The God I serve is alive. If you can kill God, he's not God. And that's what we're going to celebrate when we celebrate the resurrection. Nevertheless, we're going to leave the fundamental truths of the resurrection for two weeks from now. But today, I want to back up from the resurrection. And I want us to talk about the place that made the resurrection a requirement. And that is the crucifixion of Christ. One writer said it this way, there could be no joy of Sunday without the sorrow of Friday. Another wrote this, indeed the resurrection displayed God's power, but at the cross it is God's love on display before the astonished eyes of both heaven and earth. For the cross is the hinge point of human history. It is the fulcrum of God's grand brilliant lever. 4,000 years in the making that in a single day pride a fallen world from Satan soul killing grass and it is at the foot of the cross and there alone that we can look with horrified wonder upon the raw ferocity of God's love for a fallen race the cross is where God showed how much that he loved us people ask all the time does God really love me well he proved it in his incarnation didn't he willingly forsaking the privileges of glory and heaven to come and to be with us he proved it when he said I'm your friend hanging out with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and never once pulling back because of our repulsive evil he proved it by his associations but Calvary Calvary of all the places is where God emphatically he put an exclamation point on the fact that he loved us and as every drop of his guiltless blood fell to the ground it was shouting out I love you with an undying love does God love me the cross does God care the cross does God see my pain the cross does God understand what I'm going through the cross do I matter to God the 
One scholar so eloquently put it this way. There is still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, that symbolizes divine suffering. If his birth is God with us, the cross is God for us. And we talk about this and we see this through scripture in so many different ways. Psalm 56 verse number 9 says this, When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. Romans chapter 8 verse 31 says, What shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? With his birth, he came to be with us. But on the cross, he showed us that he was for us. And indeed, the cross is the place that Jesus went all in for you and I at a cost that I'm not sure that we can ever be able to fully grasp. We have defined all in as full devotion to Christ, no matter what the cost. But the cross is where God flipped that paradigm. And he went all in for us at a cost that I don't think human words can really convey, but I'm going to try. My challenge was, where do I start? I could begin with the actual crucifixion and walk you through the humiliation, the horror of the scourging at the hands of the hateful Roman soldiers or the asphyxiation that would set in to those who endured this heinous way of dying. I could walk you through what his body looked like as he hung on that tree, quoting from the great prophet Isaiah who said, his visage was marred beyond recognition. But instead, I want us to look intently At the loneliest intersection in all of history, two rough-hewn beams of wood, better known as the cross of Christ, the place where our Savior went all in for us. And I want us to examine the price that he paid from his very own words, the dying words of our living Savior. Of course, every word that Jesus spoke is important. Every word that he spoke is something that we mine and parse for meaning in our own lives because we know only he has the words of eternal life. However, the dying words of Jesus, seven of them in total, convey to us such a high price and a love so deep that it should take every heart from where it is right now to where God expects us to be and that is all in for him. Seven in all, the number of God's completion and perfection. All seven spoken in the span of six hours. Six being the number of man because when man comes into contact with what Jesus did on the cross, he becomes perfect and complete in every way. These words spoken from the ninth hour, 9 a.m. to 3 a.m., six hours, the first three were spoken in complete daylight. But with the fourth word, The sun gave way to a complete darkness over the face of the earth at noontime because something was happening behind the veil. For a man to speak anything in the kind of condition that Jesus was in is a miracle, but Jesus spoke seven times. The first word shows us that the cross was the place where he interceded for us. Luke chapter 23, verse 34 says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, For they do not know 
what they do. Jesus has long last reached the crescent of Calvary. Calvary. He is willfully walking and even stumbling, probably crawling at certain times to the place of the skull. And it's time for the soldiers to do their cruel work. All four of them, four Roman soldiers, are positioned to execute the three that were there that day. Two common thieves and he whose crime was inscribed on a placard that was placed on the cross that he bore. King of the Jews. The thieves are first and the nailing goes just like it should. At first they fight back just a little bit, but the beating that they took leading up to that has taken the fight out of them. And so they are now secured. And now it's time to deal with the king of the Jews. Now it's time to deal with Jesus. Surprisingly, he offers no resistance to the shock of the soldiers He who has the power to call on 12 legions of angels to rescue him. He whose words brought the very worlds into existence remains silent as he is being nailed to that cross. But the real shock came next. They heard him speak in Aramaic. Abba, he said. The Roman soldiers looked at one another. What is he doing? Who is he calling on? A Jewish bystander probably interpreted he's calling on his father. No, no, no. Listen, he's praying. Well, what's he saying? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's praying for you. This prayer was so powerful. The soldiers are shocked, shocked so much that one of them would lay, who would later put a spear into his side, would in regret say, surely that was the son of God. How could it be any other way? I surrendered Savior's first words are words of forgiveness. As nails are being driven deep into his hands, as his guiltless blood is being spilt to the ground, mercy falls from his grace-filled lips because this is why he came. John chapter 3, verse 17. Everybody knows verse 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And we stop, but verse 17 is so powerful. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is why he came. He prayed. He interceded for them. The soldiers heard it. The thieves to his left and to his right heard it. The onlookers heard it. But most importantly, God, the Father, heard it. Forgive them. This petition for mercy extends beyond the soldiers and ripples through time like an ocean of grace for every single one of us on the cross as he's bleeding. He's interceding. He's doing that for you and for I. He not only did it then, but the Bible says he forever liveth to make intercession for us. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, therefore he is also to say able to save to the uttermost those who come through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. The cross is the place that he interceded for us. For every person that is going through, Jesus is interceding for you. For every trial, for every tragedy, for every strong storm, for every sickness, for every setback, for every struggle, for every sin, for every act, even when it's done intentionally, Jesus is interceding for us. Father, forgive them, for they know not what 
They do. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for that place where your blood was spilt so that I could be forgiven. Thank you that sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Thank you for the cross, Jesus. The second word tells us that the cross is the place where he answered prayer for us. Luke chapter 23, verse 43 says, And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus has spoken his first words, but since he spoke those, he has remained completely silent. The soldiers have divided up his clothes. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us gambling or rolling dice to see who would get his long, seamless robe, which was of great value. The religious leaders are hurling insults his way. The soldiers are mocking him. The the, the people around them and the Pharisees and Sadducees are saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God, they mocked. And if the insults beneath the cross were not enough, now comes an insult from one of the thieves to his left on the cross. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Not a cry of petition, but a cry as if to say, look at this big hoax that is standing here. But unexpectedly, there comes another cry from the thief on the other side of the cross to rebuke his friend. And he says to him, Luke chapter 23, verse 40, Do you not even fear God? Sing you under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Something in Jesus convinced him. Maybe it was the fact that Jesus prayed for his enemies. Maybe it was the grace by which he allowed himself to be handed over to the Roman soldiers. Maybe it was the stories that he heard about Jesus. Maybe it was because he knew he did all of these miracles. Something in him caused faith to arise in his soul. And he prayed this prayer or made this request. Luke chapter 23 verse 42. Lord remember me when you come into your kingdom. Every insult that was hurled his way and the king of glory said nothing. He remained silent. But yet the feeblest cry of faith from the lips of even someone who was undeserving elicited a response from Jesus and not just any response, but a response that was exceedingly abundantly above all that the thief could ask or imagine. The man asked to be remembered. But here's what Jesus said. He said, assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Is it any wonder why he's called the faithful and true? Because he did not just what he asked, but he did so much far and above what he asked. And this man became the first person to taste of the promises of what eternal life is like after the cross. When in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus did more than he asked for. He hasn't even completed the work of salvation yet, but yet he's fulfilling his very own words. If I be lifted up, I will draw all people onto me, all people, the ones that the world says don't deserve it. And the ones that do the ones that are on the outside and the ones that are on the inside, the old, the young, the rich, the poor, the black, the white, the ones that are living holy and the ones who are not. Jesus said, if you just call upon me, 
You shall be saved. He's a faithful God. He's a prayer answering God. He does exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. He doesn't answer our prayers because we're worthy. That's not why he answers our prayers. He answers our prayers when we put our faith in who he is. That's grace. It is God's riches at Christ's expense. And when we put our faith in him, every single promise is yes and amen. Jesus on the cross answered prayer for us. The third word, the cross is the place where he affirmed us. John chapter 19, verse number 26 and verse 27. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. As Jesus looks down In a sea of contrary faces, he sees evil eyes looking back at him. Eyes filled with hate and disdain. But in that sea of angry faces, he spots two sets of eyes that are different. Two sets of eyes that are filled with compassion and pain and tears. The first one belongs to the only one who did not desert him. Well, he was on the cross and that was the uh, apostle John. The second set belongs to his mother Mary. Mary who is feeling things that no mother should ever feel and watching things that no mother should ever see. And from the cross, Jesus locks eyes with her and he shouts out something that at first blush may seem like it is, you know, rude or insensitive or disrespectful. Woman, he says to her. And people would say, how could he in that situation Talk with such disrespect to his mother, but oh, it wasn't disrespect. Jesus was reminding Mary of who she was. See, she was first called woman when God brought her from the rib of Adam. And Adam took one look at her, and I like to say he said, whoa, man. But more importantly, he was called woman. When God issued that prophetic proclamation after Satan had snuck into the garden and sinisterly uh, deceived Adam and Eve and sin fell upon all men and God gathered everybody around and in Genesis 3.15 he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's going through Mary's mind? Is she remembering the angelic announcement from Gabriel saying that she would bear the Messiah? Is she remembering him in the carpenter shop learning from his father Joseph? Is she remembering the time when he was 12 and he ran away? Is she remembering the first miracle at the wedding feast of Cana? She was undoubtedly remembering life was flashing before her. Her heart was grieving to the point where she was beyond consolation. And so Jesus spoke this third word to remind her of who she was and more importantly, who he was. Jesus was reminding Mary that she was that woman. 
She was that woman that God the Father spoke many centuries before, thousands of years prior in the garden. She was reminded, he was reminding his mother that you are the chosen one. You are Mary. You are that woman. And because you are chosen, you have been gifted with the grace to go through whatever it is that you're going through right now. And the gift of God on your life will take you through what now seems to be an impossible set of circumstances. You are that woman. He was reminding her of the prophetic promise that this, what she was witnessing, was the bruising of his heel. But he was also reminding her, it was the third word, that in three days from now, see in Bible threes are so important. In Bible threes represent power. They represent resurrection. They represent love. They represent emphasis. And so God would often say, holy, holy, holy. It's called the Semitic triplet in the Bible. And he was reminding her with this third word of the power. He was reminding her that even though she was witnessing the bruising of his heel right now that in three days he was going to crush the serpent's head Jesus was affirming Mary on the cross he was letting her know as she was going through a sea of pain who she was there is an affirmation revolution going on right now in our world The enemy of our soul is confusing the identity of countless masses of people under the guise of what is normal. And Jesus is reminding us that where we get affirmed and where we find who we truly are is at the cross of Christ because it's there that we realize that we don't have a label that has been given to us by man, but we have a title that has been given to us by God Almighty. We have been created in the image and the likeness of Almighty God. We are God's masterpieces created in Christ Jesus. And when you go to the cross, you find out who you truly are. The third word was a word of affirmation. The fourth word tells us that the cross is the place where he was forsaken for us. Matthew chapter 15, verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With the fourth word, the sun hides its face and the earth reveals what is happening behind the veil of the natural and complete darkness falls upon the entire earth. And Jesus is now experiencing what caused him to sweat drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. It wasn't the crucifixion. It wasn't the spikes. It wasn't the humiliation. It wasn't the pain. It wasn't his marred visage or any of that. It was knowing that the accumulated sin guilt of fallen billions would be poured on him. That he would literally become sin for us. And this cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not one of surprise. It's, it didn't take Jesus off guard. He's not asking why as if, please explain this to me. Jesus is actually quoting scripture when he says this. He is teaching us the scripture that he is quoting is of himself. The very one who wrote the scripture 
is quoting the scripture. Psalm 22 verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And at the night season, I am not silent. And from him, he's teaching us that in your darkest moments of life, when you feel God forsaken, when you feel like there is no hope, when you feel like there is no answers, Jesus is saying, let the word of God come from your lips. Stand on the word of God in every single circumstances because the word of God is where you find life and help in the dark places of life. He's teaching us even as he's being crucified. And in this surreal moment, this sovereign moment, when he is tasting of the full fury of God's judgment for all of the injustices and every sin that will ever be committed, past, present, and future. God the Father, for the first time ever, has turned his face from God the Son, and he who knew no sin was forsaken by the Father. He who never tasted what it was like to be separated from the Father now is feeling the full weight of the Father's fury and he is God forsaken. To be forsaken by a friend is sad. To be forsaken by a family member is even sadder. But the saddest thing in all of human existence is to be forsaken by God. And Jesus was, and the reason why he was is so that you and I could be forgiven. He was forsaken that we could be forgiven. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The fourth word is a word that shows us he was forsaken so we could be forgiven. The fifth word. The cross is the place where he got thirsty for us. John chapter 19 verse 28 says, After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. Is anyone else shocked that Jesus said, I thirst? How can the one who created the seas and the oceans be thirsty? How can the one who commanded the seas to stay in their shores and in their place be thirsty? How can the one who created and controls the water be thirsty? How can he who brought water from a rock be thirsty? How can he who said, I'm living water, get thirsty? But the answer is he became thirsty for us. And notice, they put the sour wine and vinegar on a hyssop branch. I mean, well, why a hyssop branch? Why not just any old stick? Why did it have to be a hyssop branch? Because in Bible times, when they were preparing for the Passover, they would dip a hyssop branch in the blood of a spotless lamb. 
And then they would take the blood on the hyssop branch and they would put it over their doorposts so that the death angel would pass by. And now here on the cross, the spotless lamb's blood was being spilt once and for all. And so they didn't even realize what they were doing. But God was telling the world that this is the final sacrifice for sin. And when this blood is applied to your soul, death has no claim on you anymore at eternity. Eternal life is yours for the taking. Thank you for the cross, Jesus. Jesus has come to this place. And as he's come here, 299 out of the 300 prophecies about Jesus have been fulfilled. Do you realize the odds of 299, somebody writing something about you before they ever met you, centuries prior, thousands of years prior, and that thing coming true? Could you imagine 10 of those things coming through? 40 of those things coming true? Somebody did a study on 48 of those things coming true. And they said, imagine that you were put in a spaceship and you went to a planet that you never visited before. And the planet was filled with sand. And there was one grain of sand that was painted green. Imagine being dropped off on this planet in the middle of this sand, you know, dune, if you will, and reaching down and pulling the grain of sand that was colored green. That is the probability that 48 of the 300 prophecies of Jesus would have come to pass. But as he stands on the cross, there are not 48 that have come to pass. There are 299 out of 300 that have been perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. That makes your odds of winning the lottery look like a shoe-in. But Jesus had only fulfilled 299. Now most people would be happy if you took a test and they say you got 299 out of 300. You'd be like, I'm good. I don't need no, I don't need to figure out why I didn't get the last one right. But you know what Jesus said? 299 out of 300 is not good enough. Because someone would always be able to say, yeah, but the Bible says, the prophecies say, that when he hung on the cross, he'd get thirsty. And there was no sign that he ever got thirsty. And so before Jesus would check out of this earth, only to come back three days later, he said, not for himself, but for you and I, that he was thirsty. Why? So that you and I would know that he's not a 299 out of 300 Savior, but he is a 300 out of 300 Savior. How many of you know you can put your faith, you can put your trust in who Jesus is? He got thirsty for us. The sixth word shows us that the cross is the place where he finished for us. Our opening text, John chapter 19, verse number 30. He said, it is finished. Our English language translates this Greek word into three, but it's really only one. Tetelestai is the word. Perhaps it's only one because maybe that's all the strength that he had left at that particular moment in time. One word that he spoke. And it means more than just it's over. It's more than just 
to signify an ending. It has far greater implications than merely the clock running out on a game that has concluded. It is a declaration that now all has been accomplished and that everything lacking has been supplied. Tetelestai first means he fully finished the work that the father sent him to do. In Bible times, when a servant was given an assignment by a master, they would return to the master after the assignment was over, and they would say, Tetelestai, I have done exactly to the T everything that you have commanded me to do. Our lives will never reflect the complete obedience of Jesus. But shouldn't it be our heart's desire to stand before God someday and be able to say, I have finished my course. I have done what you have put me on the planet to do. I am here before you. Tetelestai, my Lord and my Savior. It means fully accomplished. Secondly, this was the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word spoken by the high priest when he presented a sacrificial lamb without spot or blemish. The high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a spotless lamb. And as the blood of that spotless lamb was placed on the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat, the top of the covenant, the mercy seat. It was where the blood was spilt, and as the high priest would put that blood on the mercy seat, he would yell out a word in Hebrew. The word in Hebrew is kalaw, K-A-W-L-A-W, indicating that the sins of the people were now atoned for, and another year of forgiveness was granted. And that Hebrew word has a Greek counterpart to it. The Greek counterpart is Tetelestai. And as Jesus is on the cross, he is both the high priest and the spotless lamb. He is offering not someone else's blood, not the blood of bulls and of goats, but he is offering his own blood on the mercy seat of God in heaven so that you and I can be forgiven. And as he lays his blood, as his blood falls to the ground, he yells in triumphant voice, Tetelestai it is finished paid for thirdly Tetelestai was used in business to signify full payment of a debt and so if there was a debt it was written on parchment paper in Bible times and when the debt was cancelled when it was paid for they would actually stamp it with the word Tetelestai well what did Jesus do on the cross listen to Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 it says and having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Did you know that your sin was paid for not after you go in and say forgive me to a priest in a booth somewhere, but your sin was paid for on a cross over 2,000 years ago? Should you ask for forgiveness? Absolutely. But the reason why you get forgiveness is because over 2,000 years ago, your sin was not paid for in part. It was paid for in full, paid in full. There is nothing that you or I could ever do to make up for a sin that would make us right with God and we wouldn't know how to anyway but Jesus on the cross didn't pay in part he paid in full for every sin that you and I will ever commit or have ever committed and I don't know about you but that gets me excited because he paid completely for it Tetelestai paid in full 
And finally, Tetelestai depicts a turning point where one period has ended and another new period has begun. When Jesus yelled Tetelestai, it was indeed a turning point in human history. From that moment forward, listen to me, all you people who like to live in the old covenant. A lot of old covenant Christians. But yeah, but the, but the law says, but the law says, but this says, but that says, right? When Jesus yelled Tetelestai, it was the moment the old covenant came to an end. It was finished and closed. And the new covenant, somebody say new covenant, established on better promises began. Never forget when grief consumes you, Jesus finished for you. Never forget when things overwhelm you, Jesus finished for you. Never forget when sin tries to snare you, Jesus finished for you. Never forget when sickness attacks your body, Jesus has finished for you. Never forget when lack is your life, Jesus finished for you. Every promise in the word of God became yes and amen when the book on the Old Testament was closed and the new covenant began and Jesus has given you and I a better covenant established on better promises. Six words spoken and as the last three that we've looked at have been spoken the earth is getting ready to give way again the darkness is getting ready to lift because a new day is about to dawn. But there is only one more thing that has to be done, and that is to pray a prayer. The seventh word. The cross is the place where he trusted the Father for us. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When all on earth was done, and the Savior had given his life, he knew that there was still one more event that had to take place, and he would need the Father's faithfulness in order to fulfill it. Otherwise, the cross, otherwise his life would prove to be meaningless. And so just as he trusted the Father with his life, he now trusts the Father in his death to bring him back to life, and he prays, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Were the hands of the Father something that could be trusted? Well, a peek into the Holy of Holies, just a few short miles from where Jesus was executed on Calvary's hill, tells us that indeed they were. Matthew tells us, Matthew 27, verse 50. As Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. In the Holy of Holies, a wall of separation existed. It was a great veil, 60 feet high by 30 feet wide and as thick as a man's hand. And it was a wall of separation between God and man and the only ones that were allowed to go back there if they had the blood of a spotless lamb were the high priest. 
But in that exact moment, not not a moment at a sink, but at the exact moment when Jesus yelled, it is finished, and said into thy hands, I commit my spirit. And the high priest was putting the blood of a spotless lamb on the mercy seat. Suddenly he looked back, and what he never thought could happen, suddenly happened. The veil of the temple, separating man from God, was ripped from top to bottom. It was it's almost as if God was saying, matter of fact, it was God saying, my hands can be trusted because I'm tearing down the wall of partition that exists between man and me. And now you and I, guess what we could do? We could come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need to find grace and mercy in time of trouble. Why? Because the hands of God were involved in every aspect of the crucifixion. And as Jesus prayed, into your hands I commit my spirit. The Father was telling the Son, you can trust my hands. And God once more was vowing that just like he reached down in creation with his hands, and formed you of the dust of the ground. Three days from that moment, the Father was going to reach from heaven. He, his hands were going to burst forth on the scene. They were going to be flung over the sapphire sill of heaven. And they were going to reach down not just to the earth, but below the earth. And with those great and mighty strong hands, he was going to take his son from the dead and in triumph declare that he is the resurrection and the life. What am I telling you? I am telling you that in every dark situation in your life when you seem to think you might be God forsaken when you seem to think there is no hope when you seem to think that there is no way of things getting better guess what you could do you can trust the hands of God those are the safest places for you to ever be it's in the hands of God Father into your hands I commit my marriage Father into your hands I commit my children Father into your hands I commit my health Father into your hands I commit this situation into your hands I commit my career into your hands I commit my education into your hands why would you want your life to be in any other hands the hands of almighty God And the real message of the cross, the place that Jesus went all in for you and I, is that put your life not partially in, but completely in the hands of the one who cares so much for you. Would you stand to your feet? Father, we honor you. And we thank you for the price that you paid. The cross that this world disdains. The cross that this world has removed from every aspect of public life. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that it's at the cross, at the cross where we first saw the light. 
and the burden of our sins were rolled away. And it was there by faith that we received our sight. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Have you given your life into the hands of Christ? Do you know that you are right with God? Jesus didn't come to condemn you. He came to forgive you. The cross is God not against you, but the cross is God for you. But he asks you to meet him at the cross and surrender there your life to him at the cross. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you put your life in his hands? Have you asked him to forgive you? Do you know if you are right with him this moment or this second? If you're here today with no one looking around, you say, Pastor, I don't know if I'm right with God today. But today I want to give my life to Jesus. I want him to forgive me. I want to be made right with him. With no one looking around, if that you just put your hand up, I want to pray for you. I won't embarrass you, I promise you. Pastor, today I want to give my life to Jesus. I don't know if I'm right with him, but today I want to give him my life. You can put it up right where you are and then put it down. We won't embarrass you, I promise. As you're praying, as you're thinking, there are people on the other side of this camera right now who God is speaking to you. If that's you right where you are, hold your hands up to heaven. I want to lead us in a prayer right now. I want us all to pray for the benefit of the one. The Bible says that if there's just one, all heaven rejoices because that's the reason why Jesus came. Let's pray this prayer out loud together. Heavenly Father, I give you my life. I repent of my sins. I ask you to forgive me as I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I will never be the same in Jesus' name. 